0: Happy Sunday to you. Uh, If you're with us for the first time, you're with us online, know that we're glad you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, Before we jump into the book of Philippians, I wanna give you an exciting update for us. You know, over the past four months, uh, coming out of quarantine due to COVID, uh, we've been gathering between two smaller services and operating in about 20 to 25% capacity between both services. Uh, and, And getting to two services, you know, this has always been one of our goals, we see a lot of benefits that come with having two services, you know, having an attend one and a serve one culture so people can serve and really so we could build a kids ministry that we're trying to, to build. Uh, however, um, you know we're, we were forced because of the circumstances to go to two services before we were, it was really best or the right timing for our church. And you know, coming on the back end of 2020, uh, we believe that it's in the best interest of our church to gather all together again for a season uh, for the sake of unity and really just to be able to uh, kind of celebrate what God is doing here you know, it can sometimes be hard to visibly see uh, what God is doing in our church when we're split up into two small services. And so coming on the back end, uh, you know, coming on the back end of 2020, we just think it's going to be uh, really good coming together in one service. I believe it's going to be an exciting time for us to celebrate and visibly see how God has just shown favor on our church over the past several months. And so as that said, on November 1st, uh, we're going to move back to one service. We're going to meet at 1030 a.m., On Sunday mornings, Uh, and just so you know, we've been kind of monitoring our attendance numbers uh, as well as uh, working to maximize this space so we can still gather together responsibly uh, with COVID while still maintaining social distancing, uh, keeping rows six feet apart. Uh, Moving to one service will take us from about 20 to 25% capacity in a service uh, to about 50% capacity, which is uh, what most churches at this time during COVID are doing. Um, and so, and they've been doing that for a while. And so, uh, we'll have about four weeks all together uh, before our college students leave for the rest of the semester and return back in January. And then we'll have four weeks uh, till Christmas. And we're going to try and make a big deal out of out of Christmas this year. Uh, Maybe may, trying to go to two, may back, go back to two services for that, but that's to be determined. Um, you know, something that we're adamantly committed to is always having a seat available. And as soon as uh, we get to the point when we're at one service, when we, have, when we run out of seats uh, at one service, we'll go right back to two services to create more space uh, in a responsible manner. Uh, and I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, with COVID, trying to maintain social distancing, uh, it, beca- it can become more of a balancing act for us. And so uh, because of that, there may be times uh, in the future where we're kind of going back and forth over specific seasons as God continues to work in our church and we continue to walk in wisdom as social distancing measures change and, uh, over the next six months to a year. Um, But during the the last two months of this year, we believe it'll be a special time for us to all be together and celebrate what God's doing among us. And so again, on Sunday, November 1st uh, at 10.30 a.m., we're going to all be back together in one service. Um, And so be on the lookout for more information. And so that said, uh, we're going to dive back into Paul's letter to the Philippi Church, uh, the book of Philippians Last week, uh, in verses 12 to 18, in chapter 1, we saw the joy of proclaiming the gospel amidst trials and challenges. Uh, And we know that Paul, he was in prison, and he also had rivals in his ministry that were proclaiming Christ, uh, but they were doing it with bad motives. Uh, But regardless, at the very end of that section, in verse 18, uh, we saw last week, Paul said this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, uh, I rejoice." So last week we saw the joy of proclaiming Christ. And that said, this week I'm going to go ahead and give you our our main idea for today, and it's this. Joy is found in living with eternity in view. Last week we saw uh, there's joy in seeing the gospel for salvation, seeing people cross from death to life, uh, like we saw last week in baptism. <clears throat> and, but as we'll see, the gospel is far more reaching than that. The gospel is for salvation. It changes our eternal life, but it also changes our lives right now. You know, if we have an eternal perspective, if we keep our end goal in mind, it should change what we do right now. You know, I think we uh, naturally get this concept. Uh, for example, if I get in my car and I don't know where I'm going, uh, it can be a little unsettling for those that are in my car. Uh, which I don't know if I should share this or not, but something... Uh, <laughs> Sometimes when our family has been home all day, uh, we start to get a little stir crazy. And when I say we, I mean me and mommy. Uh, we just by about nine thirty or ten a.m. It's time to get out of the house. Uh, we start shooing people right I, like uh, randomly. I'll just uh, start shooing uh, my kids into the car, um, and I don't have a clue where we're going. And they ask, "Hey, hey, Dad, uh, where are we going?" And I say, "Hey, it's a surprise, okay." Uh, It's a surprise. And then Kelly's like, hey, Eric, where are we going? And I'm like, hey, hey, babe, I I got this, okay? I've got it. Everyone gets in the the car. It's a big win in itself. And by this point, Kelly, it's adamantly clear that I have no clue where we're going. Uh, And to which I have about three minutes to try to figure it out uh, before I'm in trouble. Patience is lost and everyone wants to turn around and go back home. However, in contrast, uh, when we know where we're going, it affects everything we do up to this point. If we're going to the beach, we pack toys, we pack the beach chairs, we pack bathing suits, uh, and then we drive south or west. If we're going to grandparents' house, we prepare for a long drive, uh, we pack accordingly, and then we head, head north. Uh, and what we, when we know our end goal, it changes what we do and how we live right now. And so as Christians, we know our ending destination— which should affect how we live today. Which is what Paul's getting at in this passage. Uh, Paul speaks of his death while knowing that his life now is different because of that. And today, we'll see the tension of this. We'll see one of the more quoted verses in Philippians which says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, this is, pas- this is one of those uh, passages that makes the distinction between true Christianity and a safe, comfortable Christianity. And this passage is one of those passages that fuels—it fuels the vision of our church. In our reality, we don't—if we don't grasp this, what we see in our passage today, our vision it will not happen. You know, we're going to see uh, there's a, a different Christianity than the typical "just show up to church, uh, pay your tithes, be a nice person, and stay married" Christianity. Uh, don't get me wrong; these things are good. But if we're going—we're going to see if we keep eternity in view, we're going to see that God has called us to a far greater calling. That God has a much bigger vision for our life than that. You know, God has given us a purpose. God has given us each a grand purpose, a grand vision that involves every ounce of our life. You know, the the, the vision of New City Church is to see lives radically changed by the gospel and then to be sent out all over the world with the gospel. We want to send places to to an all reality. It makes no sense apart from the gospel. We want to see lives so radically changed by the gospel in a way that uh, really makes no sense apart from the power of God. We want to see convicts become church planters. We want to see drug addicts become disciple makers. We want to see prostitutes become prayer warriors. We want to see the greedy become generous. We want to see apathetic become zealous. We want to see the comfortable become courageous. And we want to see those on the sidelines of Christianity jump into the trenches of God's mission. There's no doubt about it. When you have a vision like this, uh, it invites in a big old mess. But when we keep eternity in view, we quickly see that it is a mess, a mess worth investing in. And Because uh, I hate to break it to you, um, this is not a special vision for New City Church. This is really just normal Christianity. But the only way we get there is by believing the idea of what our passage today speaks of. And it's that we live for Christ and nothing else. By understanding the gain of death, the gain of stepping into an eternity with God. You know, when the vision of our life and the lives around us are matched up with Christ's vision for our life, we start to do crazy, crazy things, live zealously and boldly as if we have absolutely nothing to lose. You know, at the very least, if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're watching online, this should intrigue you, I think. You know, causing you to ask, what is so great about Jesus that would cause someone to say, dying is gain? Now, I think that should be very intriguing to you if you're not a Christian. You know, if you are a Christian, it should also make you think, how does living for eternity change my life right now? And then for everyone, we should all be asking, what is it? What is it that we truly live for? What truly drives our life? And so that said, uh, we've got three points to to today to divide our time. And it's this, It's, it's a death worth dying, number one. Number two, a life worth living. And number three, a life worthy of the gospel. You know, our first two points we'll see primarily in verses 18 to 26, which we'll get to in a second. You know, We'll wrestle with this idea of living for eternity, to wrestle with uh, the idea of living a life worth living, living a life on purpose with eternity as the end game. And then uh, in the last point, the third point, in the last few verses of chapter 1, we'll see at the back end of our time, uh, we'll see that what this looks like, the implications of these first two points. When we keep eternity in view, what does our life look like now? So follow along with me starting at the end of verse 18 where we'll see our first two points. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So just a quick thing as a quick side note, before we get into our first point, Paul says uh, he will rejoice, but we have to ask, why, why is he going to rejoice? How can he rejoice? Because, well, he knows two things as we see in verse 19. Number first, we, see, we know that he's being prayed for and we also know that he has the Holy Spirit's help. And, and before we go any further, just let that sit, right? Paul was able to rejoice because he knew that he was being prayed for and Paul knew that he had the Holy Spirit's help. You know, one of the many benefits of being in a group here at New City uh, is that you know that you're being prayed for. Each week, we pray for each other. May we not lose sight of the astounding power in prayer. Brothers and sisters, hear this, okay? Pray for one another. Make that a habit. I need prayer. You need prayer. We all need prayer. And then secondly, Paul said he knew he had the spirit of, uh, he had the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ that would turn out for his deliverance. This deliverance, you know, this is an ambiguous deliverance. It's often debated. Um, Some have pointed to his deliverance from prison. Some have pointed uh, to his eternal deliverance. You know, when I first read it, I thought uh, maybe it was some sort of deliverance from his enemies. Those uh, that were, you know, the annoyance they were bringing that we looked at last week, possibly. But regardless of the deliverance, What I think is more important is that he found confidence in prayer and in the Spirit's help for his deliverance. And when I think of this, one of the things that scares me the most, you know, specifically in in cultural uh, American Christianity uh, in the church, and honestly, sometimes in my own life, there's often no lack of good strategy or sound preaching, right? It's It's not hard to find good content in our day. It's not hard to find great resources. But you know what it is hard to find? A Christ-dependent people. You know, I read this quote from uh, Leonard Ravenhill uh, this past week in his book on Why Revival Tarries, and he said this. He said, poverty-stricken as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, but few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Brothers and sisters, I want to preach and teach the Bible well. If you know me, you know I love good theology. I want to get the Bible right. I spend a lot of time every week to do my best to be faithful to bring God's word. But if, we don't, if, we, if I don't lead us to pray and be dependent on the Lord in prayer by the help of his Holy Spirit, I've led us down the wrong path. Yes, we need knowledge. We need to grow in understanding. This is good for us. But may we be just as eager, if not more eager, for the Lord's power and presence as we are for more content. And, and Paul rejoiced, not in their great teaching, because he knew he was being prayed for. And he also had the Holy Spirit's help. And then look what Paul says next in verse 20. Right after he talks about his deliverance, he says this: As it is my eager expectation and hope that I would not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What cannot be missed here is Paul's confidence and how he wants to honor Christ. And this is where we start to kind of see our first two points. You know, that we have a life worth living and a death worth dying. We'll start to see this kind of back and forth uh, in this dialogue with both life and death. Uh, We see in this verse, Paul wants to honor the Lord uh, in the way he lives and in the way that he dies. Paul's not concerned with his own reputation, but rather Paul's concerned with Christ's reputation. Paul was seeking to reject uh, cowardice in his life and his death. uh, And longed rather, he longed rather to be courageous and as we'll see today, uh, we realize that death is one of those things that people will try to go at great lengths to try to avoid and prolong. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, well, when I first think of this, I think of uh, Dr. Evil uh, being frozen uh, in the movie Austin Powers. You know, I read a couple of different stories this week about the, on different things like this, and two, two different hikers uh, one one hiker, he was out in the wilderness. He was hiking and camping, and uh, he was uh, by himself in a in a boulder. It fell on him. It fell, and in desperation, he takes his own. He, he takes his uh, he, to save his own life. He takes his fishing knife. He cuts off his leg at his kneecap uh, and he uses his fishing supplies to come in and sew everything back together, including his arteries. And then he crab walks He crab walks back to his truck. He gets in the truck and he drives himself to the hospital and then he saves his own life. Uh, another guy, uh, he was walking, very similar story. He was uh, hiking in Utah and a boulder, it fell on his arm. After six days of being dehydrated, uh, and exhausted, he takes his dull multi tool, he cuts off his, ha- his arm, and then he proceeds to repel 60 feet down a cliff. He then hikes eight miles, he finds a family, he guided him to, he, they guided him to a rescue helicopter, and he made it to the hospital and he survived. And then uh, he later writes a New York Times bestseller, appropriately titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. But the idea that I'm getting at here, is that humans will go to great lengths in order to live, but the, which is a natural thing. Right? God did not create us to die. Death is the result of the fall. We as Christians should long for the day where, we, uh, where there will be no more death. And Paul knows this. But Paul also knows something else. And so as Paul sits in his prison cell awaiting his trial, he's, he's wondering if he's going to be executed or not. I mean he's he's wondering if he's going to be released. He's got a possible death in front of him looming at his doorstep and then Paul pins one of the more quoted verses in the Bible in verse 21. He says, "For me to live is Christ and to die is gain." You know, as we get into this, as we get into this verse, we realize that this this is astounding. This is countercultural. It goes uh, that goes against the typical pro- thought process for death. How uh, and how and why uh, could Paul say that? What did he what did he mean? You know, something that's uh, interesting about the original translation of this, you know, there's, there's no verbs in this verse. It's kind of like caveman talk, which is, if I'm honest with you, it's kind of how I talked when uh, I spoke Russian for several months while we were living overseas. When we would go to a restaurant, I'd be like, uh, uh, Meat chicken. Uh, and <laughs> I'd try to order for my wife, and I'd say, her steak. You know, when we try to go to the grocery store, I'd say, uh, Ride grocery store. That's about all I could do. I was very limited in what I could say. But this verse, it was actually a correct grammar in the original language. It literally would have been read, living, Christ, dying, gain. And the way it was read in the original language, it was somewhat rhythmic for extra emphasis. Uh, our English Bible, it, it inserts the verb is for readability. And so it could have been translated living means Christ or dying and dying means gain or living is for Christ and dying is for gain. And, and so if we look at the, the latter part of that, where we see Paul knows he finds gain in dying, uh, which again is countercultural while also it's a life-changing perspective. Paul knew his death would springboard him into an eternity with God to go and be with the Lord. I mean, the guy has been through a lot, Okay. Uh, He's been beaten, imprisoned, uh, stranded, mocked, and when he dies, he gets to go and be with the Lord where there will be no more pain and no more tears. But he also knows that if he continues to live, he has the opportunity to continue to advance the gospel. And so, and so Paul, as we look at this, uh, he's not as our hikers were in, the, in our illustration, which you know suggests between a rock and a hard place with no good options. No, he's got two great options, knowing that one is far better for him, which is why he says what he says next in verses 22 to 24. I want to read it again. It says, "If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell." I am hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You know Paul is emphasizing here his, his great dilemma. You know if he if he if he lives he can continue to labor for the gospel. If he dies which is his desire he gets to go and be with God. And as we think about this if we don't understand what Paul is saying uh, Paul seems like a crazy fool that maybe he should uh, go to get get some help or get checked in somewhere to to, to help with his mental health. But as we think about this even further, death for the Christian, it's a celebration. Yes, yes, there is mourning and there's grieving uh, that takes place, but it's not for the Christian who dies. It's for those uh, who are still on earth that lost the one they love. But as we see in our first point, for the one who dies, if they are in Christ, it's an incredible celebration. Which, uh, When we as Christians, number one, we have a death worth dying. And it's not because we enter in streets of gold or go to a nice peaceful place where we call heaven, but rather it's because Christians are fully reunited with God. All of Paul's troubles and sorrows, they will be no more. All of his sin and guilt will be eternally gone forever. And not only that, he will get to be with the one that he longs to be with. Paul's daily longing was to commune with God, to be in the Lord's presence, to hear from God, to know God, to know and experience uh, the daily peace that is found in Jesus. Paul knew of the joy of praying to God and communicating with God and experiencing the closeness of God by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul was so satisfied with Christ on earth, knowing it was incomplete, that he so desperately wanted to be with God fully, to see God face to face. To be in his fully, overwhelmingly powerful presence. Right, to experience the warmth of God, the full delight of God, the full holiness and awe of God. What makes heaven great is not the place, but rather it's the God who's in that place. Paul is very aware of his destination. Paul is so intoxicated with his love for Jesus. Paul is so desperate to be reunited with God that his impending death, his death row, his martyrdom, it seems like an incredible joyous occasion because he knows what awaits him on the other side of his death. Paul has such an incredible confidence in God and in the truths that have changed his life. Paul, was, uh, Paul has experienced the greatness of God, the communion with God, that for, for the death for Paul is an incredible gain. It's not, te- it's not terrifying. Death for Paul is a celebration, which for his Christians, this should be the reality for each of us. Death for the Christian is not to be feared. It's to be celebrated and longed for. Not because we want to leave this life. And certainly not to escape the difficulty of this life, but because we want to be with God. Because we know the incredible gain of being with God forever. May we long to be so satisfied in Christ. May we be in such deep communion with God. May we be so deeply connected, daily connected to God, that we would long to be in the full presence for all of eternity, being able to say, as Paul said, dying is gain. Dying is gain. And hear this today just as a sobering reminder for the Christian to be urgent for the causes of Christ. And then for the person who's not a Christian, you need to wrestle with this today. Listen to me, I want to be very clear on this. Dying is only gain if the first part of verse 21 is true. true. We are only gaining in our dying if in our living we have Jesus Christ. If we do not have Jesus Christ in our living, if we have not placed faith in Jesus Christ in our living, then our dying is not gain. Rather, it's tragic and it's horrifying. There are only two ways to see death as seen in God's word. Death is either a horrific tragedy of eternal loss and separation from God into an eternal hell, or death. It's an incredible party or an incredible celebration. And we have an incredible and eternal gain that is filled with a loving embrace and eternal warmth of God the Father. And if you are unsure of whether your death will be horrific, be a horrific eternal loss or an incredible party of eternal gain with the God who made you, if you're unsure of where you will end up, hear this today. God knew of this eternal dilemma. God knew that our sin separates us from God. This is the story of the Bible. This is what makes Jesus so great. Although God knew of our sin and God knew of our disobedience. Although God saw and despised our sin, our sin that mocked God, our sin that removed us from God's presence, God saw it and in spite of our rebellion against God, he sent us a rescuer. God sent someone to rescue us out of our sin and separation from God. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come and rescue us by dying the death that we deserve, by taking the penalty that we deserve to receive. Jesus took it. And when we put faith in Jesus, listen to this. We, we gain Jesus' standing before God. Oh, Christian, listen. As his beloved children, seen as pure and undefiled, washed white as snow, made clean and new. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, that is your standing right now. Before God, pure and undefiled, clean and made new. This was true as salvation, and it still holds true today. We need to hear this on repeat in our life. Hear this today. If you are unsure of your eternal destination, whether it be an eternal tragedy or an eternal celebration with God, there are only two options. That's it. It's either an eternal tragedy or an eternal celebration. And the only way to have an eternal celebration is to have faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Jesus is the ticket to the eternal party with God. If you do not have Jesus, you cannot get in. It's that easy. It's that simple. And this is incredible news. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. In order to have gain in our dying, we need to have Christ in our living. And if we have Christ in our living and we can see the eternal gain of our dying, it completely alters our life. Showing us that number two, we have a life worth living. If we have a ticket to an eternal celebration with God, everything in our life should be directed that way, towards that celebration, giving us an incredible purpose, giving us something to run towards, giving us a joyous life worth living. And if it's not, I guess we should ask, do we really even have the ticket? Or maybe this. Maybe you've got the ticket in your pocket. You know you've got the ticket. You've prayed the prayer. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus. You've got the ticket. You've just lost sight of its value and its power. So going with this ticket illustration, uh, imagine Disney World calls you, okay? It says, we've blacked out an entire day at Disney World just for you. Your ticket is the only ticket that will work that day. And here's the thing. Uh, Your ticket, it can be shared with anybody you want to share it with. You just kind of text it to them. They accept it. They can come. Uh, Whoever they want to bring, they just do the same thing for them. And it's got an unlimited use for that day. You just have to share the ticket and they accept it. You know, if you loved Disney World and you loved your friends, you would share the ticket with everyone. Get as many people to come with you as possible. And if you didn't love Disney, if you didn't value Disney, you're kind of indifferent about Disney, Uh, you may not really do anything about it. But if you truly understood the value of your ticket, it would change everything. And so a question to ask, do you understand the value of your ticket? Do you understand the value of Jesus Christ? Do you understand what God has given us in the gospel? And you know what I know? Because I'm just like each of you. Uh, This isn't a one-time question we need to ask. This is a daily question we need to ask. We need to continually be reminded of the value of Jesus in our lives. When we value Jesus, our lives are different. Our lives change. When we walk in sin, when we walk in apathy, when we lose sight of the value of God, instead of believing we live for Christ, that living is Christ, in those moments and in those seasons, we fill in the blank and say, no, living is wealth. No, living is financial security. No, living is my reputation, my comfort, my job, my school, my indulgences. In those moments, uh, we say, no, living is not Christ. Living is my family, my health, having lots of friends, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. In those moments, we say, no, living is just fill in the bank. There's so many things we could say. Go on and on. But what we must say to this is, no, we have been given an infinitely valuable gift. We have been granted a celebration through Jesus. And to that we say, financial security is not our life. Christ is our life. My indwelling sin, our indwelling sin is not our life. No, Christ is our life. My reputation, my relationships, my family are not my life. No, Christ is my life. And when we get and grasp the infinite gain of Jesus, our lives change. And we say, I don't live for those other things. I don't live for those other things. No, I live for Christ. And then we can then say, as Paul says, under a Christ focused lens, when we grasp the gain of Christ and the gain of dying, our perspective in life suddenly shifts and changes. And we can say, as Paul says in verse 25 and 26, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul knows that dying is gain. Paul knows the incredible gain of going to be with Jesus, but he realizes that God has left him on this planet, put him on this earth to take more people into an eternal gain with him. Paul wants those around him to be so intoxicated with the eternal gain of Jesus that more would come to the party, so more would come into the eternal celebration. Paul knows that his staying, Paul knows that his continual living is for Christ. It's not for himself. It's for Christ. It's not for his reputation. It's for Christ. It's not so he will be liked. No, his staying is for the advancement of the gospel. May our life be so saturated in the overwhelming love and grace and new mercies. Oh, the new mercies of Christ that no matter the trial, no matter the struggle, no matter what we're faced with, that we can say, Christ can use this. Christ can empower this because Jesus is my life, because my life is hidden with Christ. No matter what happens, my life is with Jesus who is my life. I mean, how emboldening, how empowering is this? Paul just talked about the incredible joy of advancing the gospel, and then he follows it up with reminding us that our life is not our own. That the purpose of our life is directed towards an eternity with God. The temporary things of this world are fleeting. Our things and our stuff, they will not cross into an eternity with God. Our bank accounts will not be taken into eternity. And if we are in Jesus, if we are living with Jesus now, the sins we've committed— will not be taken into eternity. Our guilt, sorrow, and grief, they will be gone. The rejection and the struggles of this world will not come with us into eternity. And because of this, may we be so desperate to see others come and join us, to be zealous for others to join us into an eternity, to live our life, and that we would live our life to that end. And if that's the case, if we live with eternity in view, it changes our life now, but not just what we do but how we do it. A life that's marked by an eternal uh, perspective, a life that understands the value of Jesus will realize they can bring that value into today while on earth which is why Paul says what he says next in our last four verses for today starting in verse 27. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's, There's so much here. But I want to emphasize just a few things. The first thing I want to emphasize is that first part of verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, a few technical things about this verse real quick. When he says only, it's kind of like he's saying, Hey, this is important. Just this one thing. There's a matter of emphasis when he says this. And then he follows that up by saying, Hey, pay attention here. As we just read, he said, Pay attention, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Which is why our last point for today is number three, a life worthy of the gospel. What's interesting about verse 27, that many commentators will point out, that this verse can sometimes be under-translated. So try try to follow me here, okay? That phrase, uh, let your manner of life, uh, has the same Greek word as city. Same root word as city, which is often translated as citizenship. Or as to live as citizens. And so in essence, what could, it could have been translated as let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel. And so a heavenly citizenship is implied in the original language. And so to rephrase it, we could say, hey, your citizenship is in heaven. So live in a way representing your heavenly kingdom, representing your eternal kingdom. Live in a manner that represents the gospel as worthy. And so kind of circling back around to our main idea, we could say live with eternity in view. Live with your eternal gain in view. And then what follows this phrase is important. Right? He paints a picture of what this looks like. You know, I want to, uh, in, in this last point, I want to point out four specific things that Paul points out in those verses that gives us a picture of, an, of living with an eternal perspective. Look at verse 27. It says, So that, in the middle of verse 27, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that, one, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Second one is this, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Third one is this, are not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he continues in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but, and here's our fourth one, suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had now here that I still have. So again, there's four things here, the four things that we should embrace as we live with eternity in view, and it's uh, unity in the spirit, striving with community, and fearlessness and suffering. These are all evidences of a life worthy of the gospel, of a life that lives for a heavenly kingdom. I could preach an entire sermon on each one of these, uh, but this idea of standing firm in one spirit with one mind, it's a call for unity, but it's specifically a call for unity with the Holy Spirit. When we have an eternal mindset, when we live with eternity in view, you know, there's a sense of unity, as the, as the text kind of draws out. There's a sense of unity and obedience to the Holy Spirit, seeking to do the Lord's work and not our own work. When we're living for an eternal kingdom, we're, we're, we're guided by the, the guide of the kingdom, which is the Holy Spirit, the director of our eternal kingdom. You know, I, I mentioned this earlier in the sermon. Paul was dependent on prayer and on the help of the Holy Spirit. And then next, in verse 27, a, we see that there's a striving and a side-by-side for the faith of the gospel. We strive in community. We see that, uh, in essence, when we live an eternity in view, we don't, uh, we don't sit back, we don't bunker down, we don't live idly. Uh, we have a striving faith. I'm not talking about a striving in salvation. Uh, what Paul means is there's work to be done. We have a mission, we have a task at hand. Our mission, our task is to be done side by side in community for the faith of the gospel. This is teamwork language. And so get this, when we have, when we live with an eternal mindset in a manner worthy of our heavenly citizenship, we're doing it with others, laboring and striving together to see the faith in the gospel, to see the gospel advance. This is teamwork language. And then he steps into verse 28. We see a sense of fearlessness as kind of as a team. A team of fearlessness. You know, I, was, I grew up playing uh, baseball. When I, was in, when I was in middle school, we were on a pretty decent team. We were okay, I guess. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, you know, word got out that there was a full-grown man-child in our league. And to top it off, the guy's name was Gator, okay? I mean, this was, this was the talk of the town. People were like, hey, have you heard of this guy named Gator? I mean, there was like fear. There was like an innate fear of this. I mean, so when it became our time to play against Gator, Uh, We get on our our bus and we drive across town and I'm not not kidding, the entire bus ride, everyone on the bus was visibly silent. We were visibly terrified. Uh, No one said a word. I mean, just because of fear. And we drive up, you know, everyone on the the bus was kind of looking for this guy named Gator. And I'm not kidding you, when we get there, the guy is 6'2", he's 220 pounds of solid muscle and he has a full grown beard in the 8th grade. Okay. I'm not kidding. I mean, one of our guy, one of our guys on our team, he would not get off the bus. He was terrified. I mean, he was sitting in his seat. He was refusing to get out. You know, and some of our, you know, some of our teammates finally got around him and we were able to encourage uh, him to get off the bus. And his teammates saw his fear. Uh, They came alongside him and they, they overcome his fear and just get off the bus. You know, I wish I could, uh, He'd say he remained fearless and had an awesome game, but that just didn't happen. But here's the point. You know, when we're striving side by side together, when we have others around us, when we're in the unity with the Holy Spirit, it creates fearlessness and a courage to do the things we would not do on our own. The fruit of living with an eternal mindset of living worthy of the gospel is courage and fearlessness in sight of opposition. Knowing that along with that, the fourth, remembering that suffering and hardship will come with it. This is part of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, being fearless in the sight of spiritual opposition while also enduring suffering and hardship in joy, the only way this happens is to keep eternity in view, remembering that we are citizens of heaven. As the name of our church suggests, we do not live for this city. We live for the new city that is to come. We're citizens of heaven. We're not citizens of this earth. Brothers and sisters, remember you are first a citizen of heaven. What we experience now, we can endure knowing that we have the hope of heaven. Paul was able to view his awaited trial and persecution, his martyrdom as gain because of his hope of heaven. Paul was eager to advance the gospel and preach Christ and experience conflict at the expense of his reputation because of his hope of heaven. You know, and as we close here today. I I had an illustration this week by Pastor John Piper that I thought was super helpful and and appropriate and encouraging. I kind of tweaked it a little bit for our time today. But just think about this for a second. When we get to heaven, when we're with God for eternity because uh, we believe in Jesus in our living, when we get to heaven and we see the reruns and the history books of our lives, the highlight reels of our lives, Do you know what will be highlighted in the history books of heaven? It won't be the kingdoms and governments that rise and fall. It won't be the different political leaders. It won't be the viruses that plague the world. It won't be the great big empires and businesses that we build. No, what will be highlighted in the history books of heaven will be the fearless acts of the church. It won't be our constant failures because, listen, those are wiped clean. It won't be our sin. Rather, it will be Christ's record given for our account. It won't be our unrighteousness, but Christ's righteousness will be next to our name because that's the gospel. That's the good news. It won't be our cowardice or our guilt. Rather, it will be the rerun of our fearless gospel conversations, our our boldness to engage those we love, to push them to live a life for the glory of Jesus. The highlights of the history books and the reruns of heaven will be our risk that we take for gospel advancement and the countless unseen and unnoticed sacrifices we make for the faith of the gospel. The history books and the reruns of heaven, they won't be a toxic election. Rather, it will be a record of how God changes lives through our efforts and our striving, as well as a picture of the relentless pursuit to get the life-changing gospel to the ends of the earth. It will be how we are fearless towards opposition and seeing how we are suffering or how our suffering was used for God's glory. And so I want to ask you a question in light of all of this. What fearless acts will be put beside your name? What conversations in your life will be highlighted? What striving and acts of faith for the gospel will be put on display in the history books of heaven? It won't be the stuff you collect the politicians you vote for. It won't be the grades and promotions you receive. It won't be the jobs you held. It won't be the houses or the neighborhoods you lived in or the cars you drive, but rather it will be how you used those things to be fearless and strive for the faith of the gospel. How you use those things to glorify God by representing your heavenly citizenship. And so as we continue to wrestle with this reality, knowing that there is great gain in dying for the Christian while also knowing Christ has left us on this earth knowing that we are here with the purpose of bringing in more worshipers into eternity. Knowing this, as we long to fill up the history books of heaven with the fearless acts of the church, what should you do differently with your life? Where do you need to go? What Bible study do you need to start? What do you need to enga- Who do you need to engage with the gospel? What do you need to give up? What do you need to stop doing? What sacrifices do you need to, st- to, 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 to make? What is it that you're afraid of that you know is right and good, but you're just fearful to do? Brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven. We live for the city that is to come. May we live in a manner, may we risk in a manner, may we be courageous and strive and fearless in a manner that shows we have gain in our dying, but in our living, it's all because of Jesus Christ. May we show our lives are worthy of the gospel, remembering that in all of it, there is great joy in knowing that we live with eternity in view. Let's pray. God, you are eternal. God, you are with us today, yesterday, and forever. You do not leave us. You do not forsake us. Father, you are with us. And may we be fearless. May we be courageous to see the gospel go forth. That we would take risk, great risk for the gospel. Because we have an eternal perspective and an eternal mindset. We love you we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.